you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, it's there on the screen for you. And I'll read it now, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So to begin with, I want to say a few words about what this text is, what, what these verses are doing here, and why they occur in your Bible. And the first thing I want to tell you is that these verses are amazing. I am drawn to them again and again. By this point, especially in our study through Hebrews, you've probably heard me read or allude to them more than any other passage of Scripture with the exception of maybe two or three verses. I love these verses, and they've recently entered the top stratosphere of verses I think back to uh, for many reasons. In a sense, they cover everything and give us a profound insight into the Christian life how to pray, how to think about God, and how He works, and so many other things. If you could memorize these and really internalize them and begin to build your thinking and your, your sanctification and your motivations around the words that are on the screen in front of you or in your device or on your Bible these verses, it, it would put you on a super highway to sanctification, if, as it were. They are amazing. And, 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 and in a way, they're, they're easy to preach. <laughs> if a pastor can't preach a halfway decent sermon from a text like this, they're not worth their salt. Um, it's all right here. It's all there, in a way. Second, they're a benediction. Um, that's at least what we call these. Um, there are several of them in your Bible, many of them in the New Testament, and we try to use one of them at the end of each service. Um, but the word benediction literally means saying good words, and that's not that helpful, or speaking well. That's, that's not that helpful to help us understand what they are. Uh, in a sense, they're a blessing, and, and we'll see in a minute that they're also a prayer um, they're a prayer for blessing for someone else. So, that, so you have three parties. You have the person saying the blessing or the benediction, the person it's being said over, and the one who's being prayed to. That's what this is. Uh, the commentators call it a, a prayer wish, if you will. It's a benediction. That's, that's what we mean. It, in, a, in a sense, the author is saying, we, we have said all we can say for now. Uh, here's a prayer of blessing between now and when I see you again or now when I'm able to write to you again kind of handing them off to God, as it were. And we should, I think, take his example and use our words to bless. That's what he's doing. Also, it's a conclusion. He's come to the end. In a way, this is the real end of what he calls the word of exhortation or sermon. We'll have one more sermon left to cover the personal instructions in verses 22 through 25. But this is the end. This is the real end of the sermon. That is the book of Hebrews. 
So as we reach the end, two and a half years after we started, what are your thoughts about Hebrews? What have you learned? Have you written anything down? Have you taken anything that you will hold on to more than just what you've experienced in this room? God wrote a book. Or better, He ensured that men would write this very book that you have with you. And the way that you're rewarded or judged on the last day will in large measure be based on how you handled His book. We're not here for spiritual pep talks. I'm here to increase your reward for eternity by unfolding to you the very counsels of God. Number four, it's also a summary. It's not just a conclusion. He is summarizing all of what he's been discussing. Almost every theme that is in the book of Hebrews is present in these two verses. You have the superiority of Christ, his making of peace, reconciliation, Christ's indestructible life. You have blood, you have covenant, you have purification. All these themes and more are present in these verses. So we're not going to necessarily go through every single one of them. But again, that that should help you desire to memorize them. Really meditate on them. Mull them over in your mind over and over, and, and, and that will give you a window back into everything that we've studied in Hebrews. And as I said, it's also a prayer. It's very important that we understand this as the most basic function of this text. He's praying to God for them. And he had just said, he calls them to prayer. Look at verses 18 and 19, what we discussed last week. He asks them to pray, and he urges them to pray earnestly. And then he follows that up by praying for them. It's very fitting. And he's blessing them, and that's why it's important to connect this idea of blessing and praying, right? You can't on your own bless anybody. The words themselves have no ability to bless, okay? You can maybe encourage someone with the content of your words, but you can't, like, speak a blessing over anybody. The way he's blessing them is asking God to do something for them, okay? That's how we bless. That's the only way we can bless people, There's a lot of weird teaching out there about blessing and speaking words or speaking things into existence, but that's not what he's doing here. He's asking God to do something for them specifically. So we saw last week that God hears us, and that is why we have the ability to bless others, because God hears us. And when we pray according to the will of God, we know that he answers us. He hears you. So these are the kinds of prayers that you should be praying. (laughs) We'll get to that in a bit. Also, I want to say this. These these verses are also consistent. It may seem odd to say or obvious since it's the Bible. There are no true inconsistencies in the Bible. But I think it's also instructive for us. The words that he is praying, what he's asking God to do, are in line with everything that he said up to this point. Have you ever heard someone pray for something that didn't really line up with their life? Maybe someone being very foolish or reckless praying for God's protection. Or someone not really reading their Bible at all asking for direction and wisdom. 
or someone eating something very unhealthy and praying for God to bless their body through it. Uncomfortable chuckle. Or maybe a church praying for their young people not to fall away when they go to college, all the while giving them entertainment and not the gospel or biblical theology. Our prayers should match up with our life. What you ask God to do should match up with what you're doing, what you're seeking. The author has shown us by the brief windows into his life through the book and his whole thrust of his theology that these are the very things that he himself is striving for in their case. He's put his whole life on the line, likely in prison, because he's trying to do this for them. So we should follow his example. We should live our lives in a way that lines up with the best prayers that we can pray to God for other people, that we would do the things and be active in doing the things that we would want him to do in each other's lives. And lastly... They are in sight. With all of these things in view that these verses are, they're also an insight. And this is the primary way that we're going to look at them. They give us a window into the way the mind of the author works. And because it's scripture, it gives us a window into the way that God's mind works and how he works in our lives and what he does in us. And the point of it all it's insight. It gives us this window. We, we gain real, helpful perspective on what God is up to. Not just in the world, but in here through these verses. So, we're going to address it this way. It is a prayer, so we'll structure it around that idea. We're going to answer four questions. Number one, who is being petitioned? Or who is being prayed to? I would have said it that way on the handout, but I don't like ending a sentence in a preposition. So, who is being petitioned? Number two, how will he answer? Number three, what is being asked? Number four, why are these things being asked? Those are the four questions that we'll do. And we won't address them in order necessarily because each statement in this prayer can answer multiple of those questions. So you'll have to be kept on your toes so that you'll know where to put a comment if you're following along in your notes. But if you're not, you can just listen through and have it all arranged that way. So let's look at it. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. This answers in part, who is being petitioned? Who is being prayed to? This helps us understand the identity of the God being addressed. He's designated in two ways. Number one, the God of peace. Who is being petitioned? The God of peace. That's very obvious. But what does that mean? few things. First, he's the only one who brings peace. Subjectively in your life. You have no other place, no other person, no other thing that you can go to that will actually really bring peace. Just ask King Solomon. He had everything. He tried to live life without God under the sun and he found it's vanity, it's meaningless, and it's driving me insane. God is the only one who brings peace. He's the God of peace. But he is also peace himself. He, he himself is peace in, in a way. 
There, there is no way that we could define peace in any productive sense without reference to God's character and His person. You were made for God. So how are you going to have peace if you are cut off from God? That's the point. That things being right, things being at, at rest, the, the, the Hebrew word shalom, whatever we would want to pack into that word, that, that state of affairs can't exist if you are not with God because you're made for Him. It's interesting that God is never referred to in this way in the Old Testament. When you see the words peace and God or peace and Lord in the Old Testament, it's usually God speaks peace or or may he cause peace to come to you or make peace. But nothing like we have in the New Testament. He himself is our peace or the God of peace. Why? Because God is also the one who made peace possible by the cross of Jesus Christ. So God is the God of peace subjectively. He's the only one who can bring peace internally. You being severed from God means no peace. But he's also the one who has made peace objectively by the work of his son on the cross. He accomplished it. Previously, you and your sin stand on one side and God and his holiness and his just and righteous pure wrath against your sin was the problem. It wasn't that we were uh, just in trouble in some general sense or had fallen in some poetic sense. You were against God. Hostility of mind, wickedness of mind, evil in your heart. It, 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 it's worse than just being uh, dead in some sense, like, like an inert spiritual thing. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Paul says. Following the course of this world. We, we were in league with the enemy. We were part of his dark domain. Not just as prisoners, though that's true as well. We were soldiers and happy to be so. And God, while we were yet enemies, made peace. How? By the cross. He made peace objectively through his work in his son, Jesus. And this is what is alluded to in the next statement. This is the second designation of God. The God of peace who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus. Literally, it could be rendered this way. Who led out from the ones who are dead. This idea of leading out. That God was the one who, who brought, in, in the sense of leading Jesus out from the place of the dead ones. That's, that's the imagery here. And this is the designation of God that we spoke about uh, a few weeks ago in the message over verse 8 in chapter 13. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Which God do you worship? Who is God to you? There are so many things that you could say in answer to that. There are so many different nuances of, of deity and divinity and all of this. So many varying different answers. But we would answer as Christians by saying the one that Jesus trusted in. The one who raised Jesus from the dead. That is the one true God. And the gospel gives us hope because Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't just that he made peace and created a a stalemate, a ceasefire between you and me. But because of the resurrection, because God brought him again from the dead, we have hope that we will follow him in his resurrection. 
And I want to make one note about the placement of the name Jesus or our Lord Jesus in the text. It actually occurs at the end of the sentence, but structuring it that way wouldn't make sense to English speakers. It, it would read something like this. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, the Lord Jesus. That, that's how it would read literally. And he saves the personal name of Jesus to the end as, as kind of a mic drop moment. That all of this God has done for Jesus at, at the end. But we, we treat it in this way just so that the sentence makes sense. But he says, our Lord Jesus. He is the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. But the word our here is used in the possessive sense. He's our Lord. We, we have... We have taken him to ourselves. We have we've received his lordship and gladly embrace his lordship. He is ours. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. He's a gift from God to the church. You, you have him as your Lord. Is that true of you? You can acknowledge, just like the demons, that Jesus is the son of the most high God. You can acknowledge even that he has all authority, but you can hate You can despise by your actions that he must also be your Lord. Repentance could be defined this way. Surrender. Laying down your arms and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Defection from the dark domain of the enemy. Defecting to the kingdom of life. Swearing fealty to your new Lord and serving him forever. That's what repentance is. Have you experienced anything like that? Or is it more for you, I'm sorry, I hope Jesus paid for that sin too. Are you living your life to please Him? That's the example of Brother Pat. Every day, some encouragement would be offered something would be said to point us to the Lord Jesus as our Lord? Is He yours? Is He your Lord? And then He speaks of Jesus in this way. So understand the way the sentence is structured, that this is speaking about Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. This in part helps us understand who the prayer is being addressed to, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, and then underneath the designation of Jesus, you have the great shepherd of the sheep, but it, it also gives us a sense of why these things are being asked. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the shepherd terminology also closes out the theme that we have seen in Hebrews 13 regarding leaders. We saw it in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. In verses 17 through 19, obey and submit to your leaders, those who are keeping watch over your soul. And then, and then 19, to pray for your leaders, right? So this theme of leaders has been in and around all of chapter 13. And then he, he's avoided using the term shepherd or pastor, which is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to pastors. And he saves it for this moment, the great shepherd of the sheep. 
This is the only place in the New Testament he is called the great, the mega is the, the Greek word there. He, he is the, the prime pastor. That's the point. Jesus is superior as your pastor. The point of me being your pastor is to show you that Jesus is the one you need. My inadequacies, my humanness is meant to point you to the one who can be the perfect pastor for you. That's why God has set it up this way. There is much significance, and we don't have time to discuss it all, of how, how big of a deal it should be to you, dear Christian, dear brother and sister in Christ, that Jesus is your great shepherd, that he is your senior pastor. That has implications for how we organize things, even as a church. I can just say this now, and you can think about it, and if it weirds you out, you can talk to me about it, but... Um, It's no secret I've been working on and proposing different versions of articles of the new Constitution and bylaws. One of the things I want is when it comes to leaders and the article senior pastor, it's going to say Jesus Christ himself as senior pastor. That's what I want. Because that's what this says. There's anyone who deserves that title and anyone who has unilateral legal authority over A body of believers, it will be Jesus. And then we have to tease out how that works for the rest of us, and you can read the drafts when they come out. But for now, understand that Jesus is your senior pastor. Regardless of what titles are or whatever type of church you go to, if you're a Christian, Jesus is senior pastor. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. So much significance. And that also helps us understand why it's being asked. This is one of the questions that we're working with. Why why are these things being asked? Because Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He says in John 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none or nothing of all that the Father has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he's going to lose none of his sheep. That's why these things are being prayed. This is why we need to be equipped, and this is why we need to be kept by the power of God, because Jesus is going to lose none of those that he has been given by the Father. Let's look at... Uh, we. I struggle to know what we have time for. I get carried away when we turn to other passages, but John 10, verses 1 through 18 Just take that as some homework to read through that and maybe write out what are all the things that Jesus, our good shepherd, our great shepherd does for us. One of the things he does is that he brings us out to pasture. He leads us beside still waters as we see in Psalm 23. He's going to keep you. He's going to bring you home safely. He will bring you in and let you out to find pasture. He's going to sustain you till the end. And that's why these types of prayers are necessary and why we can have confidence to ask them. Because Jesus is not going to fail in saving you and keeping you and making sure you make it home safely. So these are the things that make sure that happen. So That's why they're being prayed. And he says, and I want to allude to this just a little bit one last time. 
There, there is a subtle illusion. You can look at it. Just write this down. Isaiah 63, 11 through 14. The structure of verse 20 almost matches in some places that text. But what's being talked about is Moses being the shepherd. So one last time before the end of the sermon, the word of exhortation, he's reminding us Jesus is better than Moses. The temptation to go back the old way is still there for them. Even after they've heard everything about Jesus being the shepherd, the great shepherd, the great high priest, there's still a temptation to go back and want to be in Moses, under Moses. So as one last time he's saying, don't go back that way, Jesus is better. And then he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. It further underscores who is being addressed. This, this is how God raised Jesus from the dead. So this is, this is further illustrating who God is. God, the God of peace, the one who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, and who did that by the blood of the covenant. This is, this is who God is. But it also helps us point to how these things are going to be answered. What, what is the basis on which that we have the confidence to ask these things? How is God going to answer them? This is all before we even get to the what. We haven't talked about what is being asked yet. But we know that whatever he's going to ask is going to be based on, in some sense, the blood of the eternal covenant. Understand what is being said here. God the Father led out Jesus from the dead on the basis of, or by virtue of, Jesus' own blood being shed. This is at least a strong allusion to Zechariah 9, 9-11. I want you to see this. This isn't just an isolated idea to the author of Hebrews that's poetic and doesn't have any theology. Turn to Zechariah 9, verses 9-11. second to last book in your Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're very familiar with these verses. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. See, there, there's this idea again. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Also, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So the author of Hebrews has this in mind as he's writing this. Led out again from the dead, the Lord Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant. In that sense, I want you to see this. This, this, is, this is not how we typically think. But I want you to see the, the glory of this. In that sense, the resurrection is not only the proof that Jesus' death was enough in the sight of God, but more so... Because of the perfect sacrifice of his death, the resurrection was inevitable. And you can almost hear a tone of indignance in the, in the angels as, as they're speaking to the people that came to the tomb. Why, why are you here? 
Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Didn't you know that he was going to rise? The die was cast. The result was inevitable. Once he died, it was going to happen that he would be raised. From the perspective of heaven, God's own justice, Jesus himself earned and created the inevitability of the resurrection by full obedience in his death. That's what's being said here. Because the blood of the eternal covenant is none other than his own blood. God raised Jesus on the basis of his own blood. As odd as it sounds, it was impossible for him to stay dead because he died. It was impossible for him to stay dead because he died. There were other reasons it was impossible for him to stay dead. He's God himself. But the reason God raised him was on the basis of his blood. You died, therefore you shall live again, is what God is saying to us. And obedience leads to life. I think that's the point. In Christ, that is why you will be raised too. And that is why the resurrection is our hope. It will be impossible for you to stay dead because he died. Because he died for you and lives for you. It will be impossible for you to stay dead. Do you walk in that awareness? Do you walk in that confidence? That this is not all there is, that I will live again. Though he die, yet he shall live. That that is true of you. And that is true of those who have gone before. So what does that have to do with this prayer? What All this blood and covenant and on the basis of and Jesus being raised. What does that have to do with this prayer? I said earlier that this helps us understand how God will answer. Consider this. If God would not raise Jesus except on the basis of his own blood, then what makes us think that he is going to answer or do anything else except on the basis of his own blood? All the blessings of God are therefore secured for you by the blood of the eternal covenant. Everything good God does for you was secured, purchased, bought and paid for at the cross. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, ours in Christ. Only because what Christ has done. And he he calls it the eternal covenant. And what we're supposed to think of when he says eternal covenant is versus the annual Passover. They had to keep going and keep going and keep going, showing that it wasn't working. It wasn't really dealing with sin. It's in contrast to what was being brought to nothing, Paul says. It's, it's in contrast to what the, the shadowy preview of the old covenant. And the confidence that we have with this covenant being called eternal is that God is not going to change the situation. Ten trillion years from now, Jesus is still the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the covenant, the covenant in his blood, which we have the terms and ins and outs of right here, isn't going to change. 
It's the eternal covenant. It's always going to be the covenant between you and God. It's eternal. So don't you see, brother or sister in Christ, what treasure you have in Him? And don't you see what treasure you're passing by right now, you who do not believe? That in the blood of Christ, God promises to bless you. And not only that, He promises to bless you beyond measure. And not only that, He promises to bless you beyond measure forever. And not only that, He promises to bless you beyond measure forever. As if that wasn't already enough, He also promises never to change His mind or change the situation. The covenant is eternal. It's set. We're not going to find that there's some other part of the story or there's some condition or qualification that we didn't meet or God's going to change the scenario and we got to do something else to remain and keep our status in heaven. It's eternal. This is the covenant. It's secured by His blood. And then he finally gets to what is being prayed for. Verse 21. We've come to the core of the prayer. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good. So we've seen who is being petitioned. God is the one who's being prayed to, and we know who he is because he's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And we have seen how he will answer. He's going to answer us on the basis of the blood of the new covenant. And we have seen in some way why these things are being asked. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's not going to lose any of those that God has given to him. So God's going to answer these things. That's why these things are being asked. But what is being asked? That God would equip us with everything good. And there is, I need to say, an already not yet aspect in play here. Ephesians 1.3 says it this way. I've already alluded to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already yours. Everything good is already yours in Christ. Do you believe that? Talk about something to sustain you through trial. It's already yours. But there's a sense in which it's not yet ours or we haven't come fully into our inheritance. Romans 8.32 says it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Future tense or continuation that, that we will gradually be coming into our inheritance until we arrive there on the final day. It's already yours. You're beginning to receive it now. It's happening each day, and this is what he's praying for, that God would equip you with everything good. It's already been secured for you by the blood of the new covenant. He's going to give it to you to make sure you make it home safely and persevere to the end. It's going to happen, but he's praying that it would indeed happen in real time, day by day, you receiving everything good. Everything good? Yes. Everything. 
And one day it will be everything in the most literal sense. You will reign with him. But for now, what does it mean? Two answers of what this means. The ground or or the basis on which this is being prayed. God raised Jesus on the basis of the blood of the new covenant. So those things that God is giving you now are the things that were secured for you by the blood of Jesus. So only those things that are going to last is what we should read here. His blood is not going to be used to equip you with things that the monopoly money that we call cash can buy for you. That would be like paying for a McDonald's Happy Meal with a handful of perfectly cut diamonds. So everything good, that doesn't mean literally everything that we might consider good, but the things that are going to last into eternity. Those are the things that God is going to give you and equip you. Everything that is good, everything that you need, His blood has purchased for you. Love, patience, peace, kindness, and most of all, faith, more precious than gold. That is what He's going to work in you, as we're going to see in a bit. The second answer to what what does it mean, everything good, is the goal. Why are we being given everything good? That we may do His will. This helps us answer the why question as as well, if you're following along in the notes. Why are these things being asked? Why is He petitioning God for these things? So that we may do His will. So that you may do the will of God. This is the goal of God equipping you with everything good. And it tells us, therefore, what exactly he means by everything good. Does a Maserati help you do the will of God? Probably not. Then it's not good. Does seven figures in the bank help you do the will of God? Maybe. But probably not. So it's not good for you. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And if it comes into your life, sinful, not sinful, whatever, if it's not helping you do the will of God, it's not good for you. Get rid of it. It's not from the Lord, or at least your keeping of it and allowing it to prevent you from doing the will of God is not from the Lord. But understand, you can have a great deal of confidence that everything that you need in order to do the will of God is freely given to you. Everything. So pray those kinds of prayer. Lord, give me the patience I need in order to obey you in this situation. We could go through hundreds of examples, but that's the type of thing God has promised to give you. He will equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And He is eager to bless you with the things that will enable you to do His will. You need only ask. Is that how you would define the good life? Everything good, that we may do His will. There's almost an equal sign in between them. The good life is doing the things that God wills. I think the so-called American dream is exactly the opposite. 
Get all the stuff, have a good life, and serve God with your spare time. And give a little bit because that makes you help, helps you feel good and you're a good citizen and you, you keep the culture on the rails. What do you call the good life? Is the good life for you even having the bare minimum of food and clothing, as Paul says, and doing the will of God? Is that the good life for you? Because that's what the Bible calls the good life. Isn't that the example of Jesus himself? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Did Jesus live the good life? Didn't seem that way on the outside, but he pleased his Father and his life, his righteousness, his righteous good of his life is enough to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law for all of us. Isn't that the example of the Apostle Paul? He even abdicates his own rights to be paid so that he wouldn't become a hindrance and gaining reward and glory. That's the good life. Bare minimum, just so we can stay alive and continue doing the will of God. Many of us want all sorts of things. We even pray for them in the name of Jesus. And they have we, we, we have no concept or desire to connect that thing that we're praying for with doing the will of God. We are like the person trying to buy the Happy Meal, or even worse, like a bag of garbage with a vault full of diamonds. Jesus has died and shed his blood. He has enabled, in a sense, God to answer these prayers, to equip you with everything good. And we want the stuff. We're making a bad trade. We want to be equipped by stuff that's not going to help us keep God's will. It's like the story of, of Saul and David. Do you remember? Right as David is about to go and face Goliath, what Saul tries to do? He tries to equip him with armor. And David's response is, I, I haven't tested these. I don't know how to use these. These aren't going to equip me. These aren't going to help me accomplish the task set before me. I'll leave them all aside, your pretty expensive armor, and I will go in the name of the Lord. Are you like David in setting aside the nice and pretty and expensive things so that you can do the will of God? That's what he's praying for. That you would be equipped with everything good that you may do the will of God. And it's not asceticism, okay? Asceticism is like willingly afflicting yourself and making your life horrible for some sense of virtue. That's not what's being said here. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 says it this way. I am already, this is Paul. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure, Bible speak for death, has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's expectation as he set aside the pleasures of this world, equipped rather by what enabled him to do God's will, doing God's will, is that Jesus on the last day would reward him with the crown of righteousness. It's not asceticism. 
There is real reward. Living your life with the simple, all-encompassing goal of doing the will of God is the most wise investment. Because nothing else you're going to gain in this life is going to go with you. You will be rewarded and given a crown by Jesus himself to the degree that you live a life of doing his will in love. Do you believe that? Or is doing the will of God something you try to do on the side or as a cherry on top to the life that you otherwise would want to live anyway? Seeking all the things that the Gentiles seek. And what is his will? He, he just assumes that we will understand what his will is based on what he's said to us in 13 chapters. What is his will? Two answers I want to offer to that. You can look at all the imperatives, all the commands of the book of Hebrews and the New Testament and understand that the law of Christ, that is the will of God for your life. And it is very easy. I want to address a very specific problem here that we over-personalize the will of God for our lives. We're all searching, in a sense, for what God's will is for me. For me. And what happens is, typically, when we do that, we set aside the clear commands from Scripture. Just as an example uh, from this book, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Stir one another up to love and good works. Obey your leaders and submit to them. No thanks, God. I'm focused on what your will for my life is. Your special, personal will for me. And yet, He's already told you what His will is. He has told you, oh man, what He requires of you. Already. And number two, the second way to answer what is God's will is just look below to to this end of the summary. The very end, to whom be glory forever and ever. We'll get there in a second. Then he says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This helps us answer, if you're following along, more of how God will answer the prayer. How is it that God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the God of peace... How is it that he will equip us with everything good that we may do his will? Well, he's going to work it in us. He's going to work or build or accomplish these things in us. Those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is helpful. It shows us the Holy Spirit in a text like this. You know, that you see the Father, you see the Son at work, but where's the Holy Spirit? It's right, he's right here. The work of the Holy Spirit is right here, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is how he does it. As Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God is the one who does it. He works within you to produce that which is pleasing in his sight. And let me just say as an aside, and I I always want to rant about this to the degree that you'll give me the patience to do so. This is a plural statement. Working in you all that which is pleasing in your sight. One of the ways that God is working in us that which is pleasing is by sending us people and putting people in our lives. And if you knew 
Pat very well, you knew that that is exactly how God used him in your life as well. He, God, through your relationship with Pat, produced in you that which is pleasing in his sight. That's how God works. Is that how you are allowing and yielding to the work of the Spirit in your life for the sake of your brothers and sisters in this room? He is doing it. If you're in Him, if you belong to Christ, you never graduate from this class of having more of what is pleasing to Him produced within you. And what is more, you don't want to graduate. If you love Christ, then you want more and more of what is pleasing to Him produced in you. Do you want to see Him more? Do you want to see Him at work more? And to work it out, more of what is pleasing within you. Do you zealously seek this and work against our own flesh opposing this task? Does it even interest you at all? Or are you quite happy with where you are in your sanctification? Are you satisfied that you're bound for heaven and not for hell? Enough of holiness for now. Enough of doing His will. We have all eternity for that sort of thing. After all, I don't want to be overly righteous. Jesus has already done all that righteousness stuff for me, hasn't He? No, my friend. If that's your heart, and if you don't, that's how you think. And if it doesn't bother you, then you're likely not bound for heaven. The new covenant itself is a promise that God would work in us to do God's will. Look at Jeremiah 31. This is what he promises to do for us. I will write my law on their hearts. The point is that we will more and more be doing the will of God from the heart. That requires some soul searching for you. Is it true of you? I can't see into your heart. And to a degree, you can't either. We need God to search us and to show us whether or not it is true that we serve Him from the heart. That we want to do more of that which is pleasing to Him. Not pleasing to people. That which is pleasing in His sight. We have an audience of one, as it is said, and our goal, as Paul himself says, is to please him, or it should be. But what exactly are we wanting him to work in us? What are the pleasing things to him? I think the next statement helps us understand that. He, he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The, the way it's phrased, he, it's speaking of the channel of the act. How is it that God is going to accomplish it? It's through Jesus and only through Jesus. The way Paul says it is this. Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is pleasing to God? What is his will? Those things that glorify Jesus. That's it. 
In short, what is pleasing to God is faith in Christ. Holistic trust in a person. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The author himself has said as much. But, oh, pastor, I've already trusted in Jesus. I did that when I was young, a boy or girl. But if you speak of trusting and believing in Jesus as as something that you've done and accomplished and it's in the past, then I don't know that you know what it means to trust or believe in a person. This is why I love the song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus says the Lord." Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Is that you? That it's not enough for you that you trusted him one day in the past, but I want to trust him more, oh, for grace, or for the equipping work of God in my life, that I might trust him more. And entrust more of myself over to Him. That is sanctification. You're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You are also sanctified by more faith in Christ alone. That's how He produces in you what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. And then He closes this way. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this helps us answer why these things are being asked. Why is the author praying these things for this church? Why should we pray the things that we pray for the glory of God? The reason we need to be equipped to do the will of God on the basis of the blood of the covenant is for the glory of God. It's not just so that you would be safe and secure. It's so that God would be glorified. If the glory of God is the emanating principle of your life, then you get it. You understand. And that that realization for me was the threshold. When I realized that my good is found in God's glory. And we we don't have time to explore all the ins and outs of that, but just take it as it is. Your good is found in God's glory. The way God blesses you most is for you being able to glorify Him. What is pleasing in His sight, then, is the heart that cries with joy, glory to God forever. I wish we had time to explain what glory is. It's it's a little bit like fame or renown or the praise of His name, all these ideas together, but... That will perhaps be for another time. For now, just know through Jesus Christ is the clue that as Christ is exalted, as we trust him more, as we exalt him more, that is how God is glorified. That is how he is now insisting to be glorified and known and praised is in the person of Jesus Christ, exclusively in him. There is no other approach. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other altar of incense except on the basis of praise to Jesus Christ himself. And he finally says, Amen. Can you say Amen to these things? Amen essentially means may it be so. Or, or 
I agree with this. I am saying the same things. Amen. May it be. Can you say, may these things be? Do your prayers sound anything like them? Consider this. This is going to happen. God is going to be glorified. His people will arrive safely and we will be equipped with everything good so that we may do His will. But where is your life trending? What have you made your life about? Is it to do the will of God, being equipped by everything from Him through the person and work of Jesus on the basis of His blood? Or does that sound like crazy talk to you? What is the sum of your life goals? Is it the glory of God forever? Is the joyful crowning achievement of your life, like Paul says, and we've already alluded to, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him? Or is it getting the most you can out of this life while keeping maybe an outward appearance of godliness and following Christ? But if you're honest with yourself, It's not that much different than the rich young ruler, even though you may not be very rich. And it's not very different than the landowner with smaller barns, even though you may never build a barn. And it's not that unlike the Gentiles who seek after all these things, even though you may not chase and seek after the worst things, just the respectable ones. So just a final word for application and encouragement if we come to the end of our time. Not that much time for application, and that's intentional. I just want you to sit in awe of this prayer and really do some self-evaluation, see if this is the cry of your heart as well. But I think the most fitting application is to pray this. Not necessarily right now, but I'm saying that you would begin to pray these things because you being equipped to do God's will, to please Him, that doesn't come from you. This is why it's being prayed for. He's not telling them, do this on your own in isolation. He is praying that God will enable them to do it. So begin praying this way. You can't produce this in yourself on your own. If you are in Christ, you can know that 100%. You can know with absolute certainty that it is God's will to answer this prayer for you. How do I pray according to God's will? Pray prayers like this. You know for certain that He wants to do this for you. It may not look like you think it will, but He will do this if you're His. O Lord, God of all peace, You who brought from the dead my Lord Jesus, who is my great shepherd, Father, on the basis of the eternal covenant, the blood that was shed by Jesus, equip me, equip us with everything good that I, that we may do your will. Father, work in us by your spirit, that which is pleasing in your sight. Help us not try to please man. Because of Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we echo the prayer of the author here in these verses. Pray that you would make it so of us. 
that this would be the cry of our heart, that, that this kind of prayer would, would be in and around everything that we ask for, whether it is something simple or basic like a meal, all the way to healing or salvation for another person, that we would pray these things and pray this way for your glory in the church and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.